This is the Power to Podcast, show 21. All strong projects center on standards, right? The academic standards are at the center. It's how we meet them. So our students are learning a ton about space. Um, it might not be in the same pattern or order. It might be not be everybody has learned everything about the specific planets, but they're learning a lot about space, right? Probably more than if I said, here's the three things that we need to talk about, because the questions were driven by them. Welcome to a real world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Ken Ehrman, host of the Powered Up Podcast, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Matt Sentenstem Rogers. Matt, I want you to tell me how you are feeling, and you can use your sentence stem of, I am feeling this way because. I am feeling wonderful because it is when we're recording this, we are in the most glorious weeks of school. I, uh, I mentioned this in the podcast, but we had the Girls on the Run uh, is a local organization, well, not local at all, but a our, our chapter is local. Um, and so we had our 5K and one of my students asked me to be their running buddy. She crushed it today. So today was one of those days that you reflect and you're like, this is what it's all about. We've been having a few of those moments recently, which is awesome. Um, I could have used those in the winter, but... Um, definitely, uh, this is what it's all about moment, um, today. How are you, Ken? I'm fantastic. I, I feel great after our interview with Maggie, uh, that we had tonight. Um, uh, I'm loving my job. I, what I realized I really love about being an instructional coach is I get to put more passion, time, and effort into things that I truly believe will benefit the growth of a teacher and or the growth of students. Um, not to say that I'm dismissing things um, that come my way, but I'm able to to really hone in with with important projects. And, and I'm we're we're in we're knee deep in a lot of fun stuff right now um, at a district level as well as a classroom level. So we had a great interview with Maggie McHugh tonight. She's a middle school teacher from Wisconsin. And Matt and I spent probably 20, 30 minutes in between our interview and recording this intro, just kind of reflecting on, on everything and, and how this podcast is really impacting us. So Matt, the question I want to throw to you is what are you pulling from these episodes that you feel is impacting your classroom that other teachers would be able to pull away as well? It's a great question. I know that Ken, you and I get to sit back and kind of talk about these themes that we keep on seeing. Um, and the theme ends up being caring about what you're doing each and every day. Um, 
the theme is often much less about the um, curricular standards and much more about the student experience. And um, whether you're talking PBL, like we talk about tonight, or some of these more challenging topics that honestly are the guiding navigation of difficult life challenges. Um, so Maggie talks about social justice, and um, I know we've had episodes before talking about how do we navigate such a instructionally dangerous topic. Um, and I, I mean that strictly from the, you can get caught up in kind of either showing, sharing your own personal views that could be troubling or topics that get carried away. And, and so Maggie does an incredible job of finding the balance of safely and, um, sh with structure covering really tough topics in a way um, that continues to kind of represent the other theme, which is caring about kids and, and caring about the kids' experience. It was a, it's kind of like if you've listened to many of these episodes, you'll hear that the kids need to feel loved and that you're working towards something that they'll be proud of. And, and when we build my favorite academic term, intrinsic motivation, when they are kind of from their gut or from their heart working on a topic, the product is so much better. Um, definitely stick around for the lesson lens. A really, I think it's the yeah, embodiment of why we're doing this podcast because those are the type of projects you'll see that you can turn around and replicate fairly easily. Um, but what a beautiful way to kind of pull the resources around as well as a problem that we face uh, or a challenge that would make a difference and, and turn it into an instructional opportunity with a great advisor uh, to sit and, and guide through that activity. What, what would you say, Ken? I know we've been doing this. This is episode 21. That is correct. Holy smokes. I made it past double my quota with you. But That's true. We've... I know we said at the end of each episode and we kind of reflect and say, this was an incredible interview because, um, and we've heard some, some common themes. What is sticking with you 21 episodes in, um, that makes it a difference, hopefully in your, your, your workplace and how you're advising other teachers. I would say I'm using it as a recentering and launching point for me. So there's been a lot that we've talked about. Uh, a big one for me was, was I believe, show eight with Mike Kazula talking kinesthetic learning. That was a huge passion of mine in the classroom. And, and because of COVID and now being in this, position, this new position as a coach, I feel like I kind of lost focus of that. And it really recentered me to how passionate I was about it. And I've, I've actually spent a lot of time doing professional development sessions in my district as well as just working with teachers on that very, on that very topic. Um, so that's what I mean by recentering, like bringing myself back to things that I knew were great and you just kind of lose sight of it. And it would happen to me all the time in the classroom. I was, as I was bringing more technology and STEM into my classroom, I lost sight of like really basic kinesthetic or just like fun activities that I used to do. 
until I like would stumble upon the folder in my desk and be like, you know what, that was an awesome lesson. Like throw away the technology today, I'm doing this. Um, and so also as a launching point, because there's a lot of topics that I'm learning a lot about that I haven't heard much um, of before. And it's it's giving me the opportunity to dig deeper, whether it's it's continuing the conversation with our guest, digging in with them on the, on the forums, or just finding a book or an Edutopia article that I can that I can learn more about. And so I hope other educators are listening to this and, and doing the same thing, recentering back to activities they've done before, realizing how valuable they were when they hear someone else talk about it, or a launching point to, to a topic that they wanna, they wanna explore more about. And I think Maggie does an incredible job of tackling that with both social justice, as you said, and project-based learning. She defines it really well, she defines misconceptions really well, and she doesn't make it sound easy, but she makes it sound practical. She provides great steps. She provides great ideas, multiple projects she references throughout and provides a lot of detail into how she approaches that with students um, and does a great job of answering questions from us about digging into it a little bit more and how you can implement it in stages to build your comfort as the advisor or facilitator or teacher, as well as the student's comfort in learning in an environment like that. So without any further delay, let's jump into that interview with Maggie McHugh. Maggie, welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How, how are you doing today? I'm fabulous. Thanks, Ken and Matt, for having me. Absolutely. So to start things off with us, why don't you just officially introduce yourself share with our audience where you're coming from and just kind of a snapshot of what your education career and journey has looked like so far. Yeah, absolutely. So Maggie McHugh, I am from La Crosse, Wisconsin. We're a town on the Mississippi River, beautiful, beautiful town between the river and the bluffs. Um, my hometown is La Crosse. I'm a hometown girl, a Wisconsinite through and through. Uh, you might hear me say Ope and that's okay. Um, so my educational journey took me through my college, which was at UW-La Crosse for my undergrad and my master's. Um, and then during my master's, my thesis chair said, you know, Maggie, there's a program through New Mexico State University I think you should look into. Uh, and it was a hybrid program for teachers to get their PhD in curriculum and instruction, emphasis in social justice, and uh, looked into it and went for that. Funny thing is the name of the town is Las Cruces, which is Spanish for La Crosse. <laughs> so I feel like I just went from one La Crosse to a Spanish La Crosse and uh, that was an absolutely fabulous journey. I've been teaching for 15 years and uh, the last eight have been in a charter school. Uh, our charter schools in Wisconsin are affiliated with school districts, so we are a school district affiliated charter. Um, Project-based learning is our emphasis and my personal passion. That's awesome. I, I am very excited to dig into the, the project-based learning. Just to clarify, you're undergrad, master's, and PhD, did you pursue all of that before you got into teaching or was that early in your career that you were pursuing those those extra degrees? Yeah, so the master's and PhD, I was also teaching at the same time, which was crazy. Um, when I started my master's and PhD programs, I was working at our um, the university that I got my undergrad and master's, UW-La Crosse, with the math education department. And then um, through that, though, I knew I wanted to continue. I'm just... I'm a geek like most teachers. I love to learn. And so I 
continued with my doctorate. Um, and it was while I was doing my doctorate focused on social justice that I thought, you know, I really need to see how this looks, what this looks like can feel like in the classroom. And so I switched and moved into a sixth grade position uh, and haven't looked back. Can we dig into that a little bit? Just yeah. what you found with, with social justice and how it was impacting the way you were approaching your, your teaching and your students' learning? Yeah. I think with social justice education, I always talk to people, there's sort of two views, and both are correct. There's teaching um, for social justice, creating a classroom culture that's welcoming, inviting, um, based in, in your students' culture, in their home lives, in their languages. And that's really creating that classroom environment that supports equity for all students. But then there's also explicitly teaching about social justice and having students investigate social justice topics and recognizing they can be change agents even at 11 years old when they come into my classroom, if not younger. And so my approach in the classroom is both, but I do explicitly talk to my students, conduct projects around big topics, whether that's um, water crisis, uh, accessibility. Um, we're currently having our students conducting empathy interviews, and I have students looking at topics anywhere from homelessness, um, child abuse and neglect to the death penalty. Um, and it really, it was born out of their interests and their passions to really empathize with another person. Gosh, I am very excited to talk with you, Maggie. I feel <laughs> like one of the, the things, A, you have a very interesting background and you do follow that, like, uh, work hard and really try to, to kind of acquire as much information as possible. And there's an element of just like, excitement to see how it works out. I know from my undergraduate um, experience, I felt like everything was theoretical or, or philosophically how things should work. And um, if you look a certain way, then a behavior is adjusted. And, and I knew that that wasn't authentic. So I could absolutely see how your idea of getting in and seeing, I know Ken and I come from more of the technology background where mm. we can make, we, we love sitting at a, a round table and throwing ideas around and pitching ideas of how you could integrate a, a piece of technology into a curricular area or how you focus a curricular area around the equipment that you do have. But the key behind that really comes down to kind of practicing what you preach. And it's really hard to sit there and make that those suggestions if you don't actually have high quality experience. And um, so I guess one of the things that kind of jump into is you are coming, you're obviously in the classroom as you're going through these experiences. Um, do you feel, this is an interesting question, I think, do you feel like as you were going through your master's and doctorate program, when you're really testing strategies out, that that was your best teaching experience or after you acquired all the information and you really got to put all the passion and maybe a little freedom of creativity since you didn't have the coursework, which was the best version of Maggie in the classroom? I mean, the best version of Maggie is the next day, right? There's every day is getting better and better versions of me. I don't think I'll find the best version until um, the day after I retire, probably, uh, when I continue to find avenues to, to teach. 
during my master's and doctorate, I, I have to admit, I was timid uh, to touch, to, to explore certain topics. So for example, talking about LGBTQ issues with my sixth graders was something I personally wasn't prepared for. Um, and while I was teaching my first group of sixth graders, it maybe came up in personal conversations, but it was never a really big whole class discussion. And during my second year of teaching um, with, the, with a new group of sixth graders, and I started feeling a little more comfortable in project-based learning, that was the year where the Supreme Court decisions were working its way through to legalize gay marriage. And it was such a hot button topic and my students started talking about it and exploring it. And I don't know whether it was my comfortability, that's kind of what I attribute it to, or the classroom culture or the news or sort of just a convergence of all of those things. But I started to open up and feel more comfortable exploring the boundaries of what sixth grade minds could tackle. Um, and then that led just to further comfortability with other topics um, with students as they wanted to explore deeply. And, and so I think as I grow, I have the, the tools to conduct those conversations, to establish the classroom culture, to really affirm students' identities and help the my you know my students and their peers do that. And so I would say, yeah, that best version keeps happening. And, and, and there's dips. Oh, there are way big dips some days. But yeah, that best version is still out there. I, I love that answer. And I would I would constantly say to students, especially when I would have siblings maybe a year or two years later and I would see the older sibling and, you know, they would hear something I was doing with, with their younger brother or sister and be like, you know, man, why didn't you why didn't you do that with us? I said, Well, you know, I learned it after after you left me, like, sorry, but your younger brother or sister, they're getting a better Mr. Ehrman. Like I'm better now than I was when I had you. It just happens every year. And that's that's the quality of a great teacher, someone that's constantly improving. So on, on that topic of of that tough conversation of, of the LGBTQ conversation, how did you how did you start to approach that with more comfort or more confidence? And was did you figure out a strategy for that specific topic? Or now that you've started to tackle difficult topics in general, do you do you have any advice for teachers that are still struggling to approach these these topics, these controversial or these challenging conversations? Um, some advice that you could offer them? Yeah, um, I think the first thing, and it's part of all of our process, is really just to examine yourself um, and continue looking at your own your own biases, your own privileges, and your identity and. I think the more I grow confident in who I am, I bring that confidence to the classroom. And then I'm also able to help students, like I said, affirm their identities and bring confidence to who they are. Uh, the LGBTQ specific, and it's, it's so vivid in my mind. I had this incredible group of girls who are actually seniors this year graduating. I just got some um, graduation announcements in the mail. They started a group that wanted to talk about these critical things. They called them What Up Wednesdays. They would come down for lunch and we kept it just to once a week. Um, new teachers don't give up more than one lunch a week. That's an advice. Uh, <laughs> but this What Up Wednesdays was just a group of sixth grade girls 
who wanted to talk about tough things. And then sometimes the conversations were just silly and a place for them to kind of hang out and have space together. But those conversations did talk about LGBTQ. Um, they did talk about uh, safety online um, and having social media presences. Um, and, you know, it was just a safe space where they felt comfortable as they were growing in their adolescence to talk. Most days I just listen. Um, one of my go-to, I guess, advice would be one of my go-to places is just tell me more about that. What do you, what, what's bringing that up for you? What, what's circling around in your mind? Um, and I'm not the, the answer giver ever as much as possible. I'm, I'm the questioner during those moments and I'm the learner with them. And sometimes I do bring some clarification, uh, and help students or find the right resources, but often the students, their own curiosities will lead the questions. So that's pretty interesting. And I, I guess I'm coming from the, oh my goodness, to have those conversations, what hoops did you have to jump through? And I would imagine that there was some effort with administration because you were going to be talking about some serious conversations. Maybe it's guidance or creating or establishing trust between them, as well as the parents. I, I know that sometimes when you're talking about these uh, kind of value altering conversations and really opening the, the dialogue, uh, that it may differ from family values, traditional family values. Um, did you have any kind of challenges with that along the way? Um, I, I think you kind of first started, it, it does start with trusting relationships with administrators uh, and counselors, families, establishing that. It wasn't like day one they walk in my classroom and it's, well, let's talk about the child refugee crisis and we're just, you know, hitting things hard. It, it, it came along with the culture. It came along with um, having a strong home and school community. Um, but again, a lot of it was born from the students and affirming the students and making space for that. Um, and, and if the students are the one who want to bring that forward or lead that conversation, and I'm the person who can kind of monitor it, I do think that's an important role that we play. Um, not that I was always prepared. I remember it was actually the following year that a student in my classroom um, who I had, you know, worked with for several months, but it was about six, seven weeks into the school year. Um, and the student approached me and said, I think I'm actually, it was a, a female student who said, I think I'm actually a male. I think I identify more as a male. And I was like, okay. And the student said, I'd like to tell the class someday, just not yet. And I said, okay, that sounds good. And I just, I worked with um, that student's parents. Uh, we worked with guidance counselors and really made a safe space for that student for several months. Um, and I remember it was two days before winter vacation, right? The chaos is going in the classroom. The student came up and said, I'm ready to tell my classmates. And she, I, I, I don't know what I looked like on the outside, but sheer panic on the inside. I, you know, it's one thing maybe to talk about LGBTQ issues, but then another when your student as a sixth grader comes out as transgender to their classmates. Um, and we all sat down and I had alerted the counselors that I'm not sure where this is going to go. I don't know who I need, but this is happening. I had a student teacher. The student teacher's like, I don't know what to do. And I said, me neither. Let's just sit there and be, you know, really serious and positive. And we sat down with everyone. 
Um, I told my students we're going to have a serious conversation. I said, you know, everybody's welcome in this classroom. As you know, um, we have a student uh, in here who's been part of our community, and the student has something to share. Uh, the student shared their news that they said they would like to be identified as a he, and um, there was a, a, you know, a pause, a real heavy, deep pause, and someone said, whoa, that was deep. And I said, yeah. And another student said, so what's going to change? And I said, well, we still call the student by his name, and, you know, we just let the student be a part of our room, and you know, that's going to be about it. The students go, okay. And he said, so is that it? And that was it. I mean, it was like less than five minutes. I'm sheer panic. And these students are like, okay. I, I think so often we underestimate our students. And they are more um, welcoming and affirming of one another uh, than, I, uh, than I know that I was at that age. Um, and so I think, you know, those, and, and I know I'm setting around LGBTQ here, but I think those experiences were most transformational for me, maybe pushed me out of my boundaries, um, uh, because it did, it, it lived in my classroom and continues to live in my classroom. Talking about things such as the, uh, refugee crisis and our immigrants coming into America in Wisconsin, we're not necessarily seeing, seeing that, feeling that being touched by that. Um, you know, as much. And so sometimes those social justice issues feel more far removed. And what I found is the more that we can bring it to the forefront and really see what are the issues in our community, the more powerful our conversations are growing. Well, I just have to say that um, I want to applaud you for, for what you shared with us. And it, it to me, it speaks to two things. One, the you clearly have an incredible classroom community for your students to uh, handle the conversation like you just described. Uh, I agree with you. I don't think we give our students enough credit for what they're capable of in terms of not only intellectual ability and, and open-ended projects and things like that, but like you said, their their humility and their, their, their empathy. But that doesn't happen without a strong classroom community that you've, that you developed. And so uh, to me, without even stepping foot in that classroom or your classroom ever, that is evident um, in that. So I applaud you for that. And Thanks. also accessing your resources, going to the guidance counselor, the administrator, whoever else, because even if you were so uncomfortable with that conversation at all, it's just being present for that student and listening and pulling someone in that is comfortable in handling that is the best thing you could do as well. Um, the, you know, you don't have to necessarily be comfortable and confident handling, handling heavy conversations like that, but you have to provide the resource and the availability for those conversations to happen. And so, you know, it's, it's just important for us as educators to realize what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are, not only just in terms of pedagogy, but in terms of something much more, more serious like this. Um, because there's going to be moments where it's not, it, you're not the one that can handle it or you're not the one that can tackle it and you have to lean on your resources. And there's going to be other times where, where people are leaning on you. I mean, I can remember my, this is much different, but similar in a sense, my first year, um, we lost our, our reading specialist halfway, almost three quarters of the way through the year. And, um, 
it was it was incredibly sad and my grade partners couldn't be involved in sharing the news with their class they were too upset so i did it with them and for them because i was able to and so you know it's just that that idea of like again they knew that they couldn't do it and they needed to to lean on somebody else to to be there with them and and that only will not provide a better experience for the situation and the and for the students but it also models again good behavior it models you know your ability to ask for help which is one of the best things that we can do for students to ask for help with serious situations and ask for help on how to solve number five on their worksheet you know that 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 idea and that skill um is really important matt do you want to do you want to jump in at all on this because um I don't, I don't want to just transition off this important topic, but I know we're going to, I really want to jump into PBL too, but I don't yeah. want to just cut this conversation off. No. Well, I, and I think that when, when dealing with sensitive content in any capacity, whether it's the kid brings to you something that's sensitive, or honestly, you're dealing with something that's sensitive to yourself, that's obviously distracting um, to create a level of comfort. I guess I'm going to ask you a question, Maggie, because I think... We, we've been doing the, the podcast now for a, a good number of sessions and um, I've heard a lot about relationships and developing a classroom community. And we've heard the meet kids at the door and check in and have personal conversations. But really from the side of kind of social justice where you're, I don't want to say purposely ruffling feathers, but you're creating advocacy in mm-hmm. kids yeah. And really seeing them find their passions. I've got to imagine that there's some um, skillful ways that you kind of go about addressing tough conversations in modeling, but also invoking um, this classroom community to represent support, even if the topic changed. Can you kind of speak to beyond just the the surface levels of like, hey, I'm glad you're here or hey, I'm I'm so appreciative that you shared that. What do you put into your classroom maybe for 6 weeks that really creates the opportunity to not only address these topics but also build that advocacy further for the rest of the year? Yeah. Um man, don't you wish there was a magic formula? Uh, oh man, yes. Right. Um, I, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is it starts with circles. Uh, if you're familiar with restorative justice protocols and practices, um, I, I, the first thing I do is I get kids in a circle, um, uninhibited by by technology. You know, and really we practice forming a circle right? Um, Not an oval shape, not a circle with a little like bulge, not someone kind of on the outside. Like we are all part of it. Everybody can see one another. Um, And and within them, that circle, it's starting to share. I, every Monday, my and valleys. Um, some people call it rose and thorn. You're high and a low from the weekend. Uh, one year I had a group also say we need a plateau where something was like, you know, kind of meh, right? The, the age old meh right now, which is apparently a word. <laughs> um, and, and just affirming everybody had something, you know, probably positive, even if it was I slept, I had a good meal, um, and something maybe meh or something that great. Um, and that's, that's where I start. 
right? Grounding in, in each other. And then we come back to that circle often and, and just um, have time to reflect. Every single day we have advisory, um, even in middle school through high school too in our school, we have advisory because we find it so important to develop that community of learners. Um, leading up to starting to ruffle feathers is I really work on identity with students. Uh, and we look at our cultural identity, we look at our language identity. There's a really beautiful poem called Where I'm From uh, by George Ella Lyon. Um, it is a phenomenal poem and th there's an activity I'm sure if you Google you can find it out there where you take that poem by George Ella Lyon and you create blanks um, and students can fill in those blanks. Um, and so George Ella Lyon, I just Google it really quickly, says, I am from clothespins, from Clorox and carbon tetrachloride. I am from the dirt under the back porch. And then we give students blanks to tell us where they're from. And maybe they're not from the clothespins and the dirt under the back porch. Maybe they're from the hanging gate um, that swings and is kind of creaky at night. Maybe they're from apartment 3D, um, you know, which was way better than apartment 1A on the floor. Uh, maybe they're from the room that has their three other siblings because they're set with two bunk beds in there. Maybe they're from um, an old cabin that sits way back on a dirt road. Maybe they're from the farm uh, where they get to play in the barns. I don't know. Um, but we start by really building up who we are, where we're from, and where we're going as a group. Um, and, and, you know, to build in those conversations, we talk about the news. Um, but we talk about it and we practice. I, I use very purposeful sentence stems with students, right? Um, we, we practice how do we interact with one another, so tell me more about that is one that I always ask students. If you're unsure why they said that, say that. Tell me more about that. They start parroting and say, well, we sound like you, Dr. McHugh. And I said, good, because I think I sound fabulous. Um, <laughs> but I will, you know, um, have you thought about, would you consider this? Um, why did you say that instead of this? And then they might say something, well, Ken said this. I agree with Ken or I respectfully disagree. Um, and using those sentence stems, helping students learn how to navigate conversations. And maybe at first it's the age-old debate, is a hot dog a sandwich? And we learn how to debate, is a hot dog a sandwich? And then we go into something eh, maybe a little tricky. Should we have um, gender-neutral bathrooms? right? Why or why not? Should all bathrooms be gender neutral? That's a great hotly debated topic with students. Um, you know, into, you know, our video games promoting uh, dangerous, angry children. Um, and then, you know, we can keep building those conversations and learning how to have critical discussions. And those critical discussion skills then last, you know, with throughout the community, throughout the school day. Uh, students have even talked about it at home. We're in these empathy interviews, and I keep sharing our goal in empathy interviews is to listen to understand. And I had one of my high schoolers say, oh, my family needs to practice that, right? Like, kids know. So, yeah, those are some things I do. Yeah, and I just, I want to kind of, I know you mentioned a few times, but I think sentence stems is something that we've all heard about, but I don't think that we give enough credit towards. I know when talking about probing responses that frequently when we're talking about higher order thinking, sentence stems 
is the key to really starting that conversation. And if you give the sentence or the question um, that has a one word answer, don't be surprised that they don't elaborate. And so I think that facilitation of really being purposeful about sentence stems is a, an awesome, really great um, thing that I don't feel like I even visit enough. It's like, how am I choosing to ask this question? Am I asking it in a direct way or am I asking it a way to actually hear the kid's response, um, which I think is really important. And then, Matt, you take that and you give them to the students, right? And have them practice those sentence stems. Um, and, you know, we also purposely teach open versus closed-end questions. Um, our students in project-based learning, and I know we want to talk more about that, but one of the big things we emphasize in project-based learning is talking to your experts, interviewing experts. Uh, and we work on specific questions. We have them practice interview one another. And if they come out and say, well, their favorite sport is football, I'll say, sounds too close-ended to me. What about football? Who's their favorite team? Did you get a story about a game they watched or played in? Tell me more. Right? I can't emphasize those three words. Tell me more. That's that's great, and and I you you mentioned it here, so I wanna I wanna dig into the PBL. But before we do, Matt, I just want to congratulate you. You made it to episode twenty one without our audience meeting Ollie. Everybody say hi to Ollie. We could hear Ollie, Ollie in the background Ollie, while Matt was asking his last question. I am Ugh. for those that don't. Matt's dog is very energetic, even after a ten mile walk or bike ride with him. So I'm I'm thoroughly impressed. Um, I guess I should probably applaud your wife more so because she's probably entertaining Ollie right I'm now. I'm thinking of padding the rooms so that Ollie doesn't make an appearance. But. So, uh, so digging in the PBL, uh, what I would like you to do first is is define it in in your own terms, and and also maybe throw in like what you think are common misconceptions about project based learning that maybe is preventing people from even like digging into like looking into possibly implementing it into their classroom. Yeah. Um, so project-based learning um, and a shout out to PBL Works. I'm a national faculty member for them. Um, phenomenal resources out there, but project-based learning is where students are actively engaging in real world, authentic ideas that are all driven by um, what we call our driving question. Um, and this driving question really focuses the entire act of actions of learning. Everything we learn centers on answering that driving question. Um, and it's very different, project-based learning is very different than doing projects. So I grew up doing projects in school where a night or two before the elaborate diorama was due, I said, hey, mom, dad, you have to drive me to Michael's or Hobby Lobby <laughs> and I need glitter and I need um, foam and I need construction paper and our kitchen counter would all of a sudden be taken over by all these materials and two days later I would have this fab fabulous looking thing because you know my parents helped me because they I wanted to be fabulous and they made it look fabulous and I don't know where any of those things are right totally trashed um that isn't project-based learning that's that's just doing a project at the end and there is value in doing projects right I'm not I'm not saying there's not value in doing that project-based learning flips that though 
and says, what is it we want our students to learn and how can we frame a question to guide students through that? So um, let's, let's go on the fun one that I'm doing right now with my sixth and seventh graders. Um, and the question is, how can we colonize space? Okay. There is so much out there right now. We're looking at how can we colonize space. Now, this is a twist on your mission to Mars. We, my co-teacher Katie, rock star, by the way, go Katie. Katie and I have been talking all about Mars with our students and talking about all the things going on with the rover and the perseverance and the, the helicopter. Um, and we're going to be launching this on, on Thursday this week. But did you know there is a space hotel slated for 2027? That's right. You might be able to go live in a space hotel. Um, but there's so that. much, right, there's so much about right now getting to Mars. So we're teaching through that, but then our students all had to choose a moon or a planet in our solar system, and they're trying to figure out how they can colonize that moon or planet. Okay, because we said, hey, Mars is what's going to happen in the next 20, 25 years. We've got a lot of time after that. And Earth is getting crowded. We just learned Mexico City is sinking 15 inches every year, right? We keep looking at all these problems of overcrowding on Earth and, you know, global warming, all these things. So we got to think about where we're going to be, you know, moving. What is our next frontier? Um, and it's fascinating how students are becoming creators and thinkers and problem solvers. And so I, I Honestly, right now, can't remember the moon or planet, but its atmosphere has 100% oxygen. Um, and our atmosphere is nowhere near 100%. We're mainly nitrogen in our atmosphere. Um, but these students are like, okay, well, we can breathe, but I don't know if we can breathe that much oxygen. And they're looking at what that's doing to your body. And they're starting to plan, well, do we need kind of a different like filter, a certain space to, to sort of mix the oxygen with some nitrogen and get a different chemical makeup? And it's all born out of their curiosity, right? Like I didn't tell them come up with a new spacesuit. I don't know what this spacesuit's going to be, but the students are planning that right now based off of our question, how can we colonize space, right? Um, we have students who learned, oh, Pluto, how many years away is Pluto? I want to say 80. Pluto, how many years? This is the beauty of Google, right? I don't actually have to know anything. So let's say it's 80 I just, years. I just I, really hope that you are reinforcing the fact that Pluto is a planet. Because yeah. it was when I was a kid, and, and I, I, think it's back, I think it's back in the rotation. Am I, am I correct you on know, that? We just never really know, right? But we said planet. <laughs> we said planet. We said moon. We said, you know, whatever space object. Oh, Uranus is 84 years. Pluto's like 250 years. So I think the spirit must be colonizing Uranus then because they said it's around 80 years. So they are coming up with this insane rocket ship that is multi-generational. Okay, so they said, well, wait, 80 years, none of us are going to be alive by the time we reach our planet. So instead of having just one generation of people, we need to have babies. But wait, but the babies, if they're babies, they're going to be 80 some years old by the time they get there. So we need the babies to have babies. We're not touching that topic, though. Right. <laughs> We're just letting them plan. So they've got these like different generational pods. And then as you learn, you move up a pod and you start planning and training for your job once you eventually get there 
Like the creative thinking of these students to think about it just based off of learning that it's going to take 80 years is phenomenal, right? And so we are learning and growing and they're mapping and diagramming this whole thing out to scale and thinking about how much it's going to take um, to power this and what's the weight of it going to be and, you know, what kind of fuel could it be? And it's their questions that keep driving the project. Um, and to me, that's, that's project-based learning. Right. I don't know. It might not be this fancy actual thing, but tell, I'll tell you cardboard and some really cool online programs. Um, you know, these students are coming up with creative things that they can't wait to hear. Out. So what's the what's the roadmap look like for this project specifically or yours in general? What is your strategy for starting it off with a question? and and giving students that total independence in in asking more questions and following their curiosity but do you have pit stops along the way is there a end goal to it like what does that structure look like to be able to have the students follow a track but still have that that level of independence and curiosity right um, so a great project starts with a launch, just like any great lesson. We got to hook our students in. They want to be excited and ready to learn. Our launch was the earth's too crowded, solve it. Um, and we didn't tell them how to solve it. Oh, but the condition was you couldn't um, kill or harm any living things because uh, um, there was a well, we won't go into other ideas, <laughs> but we had students create floating Circles pods. back to the video game conversation. Right. There it is, Ken. Um, we had students creating like floating pods in the middle of the ocean. We had students creating like different um, multi, just more skyscrapers. We had students building tunnels like underground. Um, we did have some students send some rockets. Someone came up with a shrink ray gun. Um, that's, that's great. It didn't kill off anybody. Um, but then we talked to the students and we said, no, really, the earth really is crowded. And here's the issue we're facing let's talk about this whole mars thing um and so that kind of launched and got the students curious about it um how we are managing and structuring it's all cycles of inquiry right we ask a question um, and the students wrote a list at the beginning of their need to know questions and we keep bringing them up hey you said you needed to know um, about atmosphere so we knew if we could breathe on other planets or moons, right? So this is something you said. So then we are modeling it, like I said, using Earth and Mars, and then they are going through and finding information and data about their own planets or moons or celestial objects. Um, and so it's sort of a, a, a model and hand off that responsibility. Um, and then student, we continue to come back to our questions and we mark questions off as answered. We take questions and say, well, that actually started a new question. And yeah, we have a roadmap. Um, the roadmap is, as always, three to four days off schedule. Uh, but that's okay, right? That's okay. Um, and where we're moving into is really our students. Um, they've been uh, making websites, secret mission plans. Um, that nobody else gets to see but us in their in their website as their secret mission. And eventually now they're in their teams going to be coming up with solidified plans that they will be presenting out. All right, I have a few things to point out. And, and so the first thing that I want to say is, so Maggie, this speaks to intrinsic motivation. And it speaks to the kids owning an opportunity to 
make a difference. And I think that, that where that idea of social justice matches PBL so well is the idea of the discoveries kids make, it doesn't have to end. Uh, it, it doesn't have to stop at the end of your project. Um, you could make a suggestion or you could get in contact with a subject matter expert. And we see all the time in newspapers or online kids going viral for the way that they've made a difference and how that extends. And it may just be raising money at a lemonade stand to, de to dedicate in a certain way, but it may be way further, and really, it unlocks, uh, unlocks the passion of really creating advocacy. Now, I was, uh, I've mentioned it before on the podcast. There's a, a program um, called uh, Responsive Classroom that has a secondary book that, uh, called Yardsticks, which is incredibly helpful to kind of understand um, maturation, what to expect. And after 10 years old, you can create advocacy and, and the ability to really care about a problem and lead to kind of solving that. So that is a huge excitement. It is a huge benefit when you're not having to worry about the behavior side of things because the kids are really invested. And, and that can be a little concerning for teachers of driving that conversation and making a project continue when you are essentially handing the keys over to the kids to take it in their own direction using those questioning stems and, and what have you. Say you're talking to a, a new teacher that comes to your building. You said, I believe your building is PBL focused um, in general, but they come and they have some resistance because we're at the time of the year that PBL sounds great. We're towards the end of the school year. State testing for the most part is done. Sure, if I can have a project go two weeks, that's a big chunk of time that gets me towards the end of May, but there's still high quality learning in there. And there's high quality instruction. So can you kind of talk to me about how you feel like you address, whether it's grade level responsibilities, the standards for the, the learners, but still incorporate PBL throughout the entire school year, not just the writing it out and just having a good memory of this grade level. Right. Yeah. Um, the school I'm in is what we like to call wall-to-wall -wall PBL, where students are always in a project. We have a few types. One is called advisor guided. So at our school, I'm actually an advisor. Um, when I introduce myself, I don't say I'm a teacher. Our, our title is advisor, which really starts flipping your role of who you are when you're advising and guiding students through projects and, and through life as a community member. Um, and then there's personalized student projects. So our students are also creating and implementing their own projects on a topic they've decided. Some people call it like genius hour or 20% time. Um, we have that going all year round where students are devising and implementing their own projects. And you talk to the standards, all strong projects center on standards, right? The academic standards are at the center. It's how we meet them. So our students are learning a ton about space. Um, it might not be in the same pattern or order. It might be not be everybody has learned everything about the specific planets, but they're learning a lot about space, right? Probably more than if I said, here's the three things that we need to talk about because the questions were driven by them. 
Um, and, and so when you talk about state standards, we meet the state standards. We just meet them differently. Or maybe we meet them in a different depth or a different rigor. Our projects are very rigorous, um, but we emphasize different state standards, perhaps to a different level. And most standards I'm seeing are really moving towards a skill-based approach and less about that specific, you must know, I don't know, the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and this, just what is war? What is conflict? And that's how, as a project-based learning, we've always approached it because our learners, if they know how to learn, they can unlock any learning. Right? It isn't any more in education, really at any level, about learning concrete, discrete skills. Now, of course, there is literacy. I am not saying our students don't need their ABCs. There is mathematical literacy. There is general understanding we need. But we don't need to memorize the periodic table. Right? We don't even need to memorize all the, all the countries or all the states and its capitals. I've Googled at least three things sitting here with you three, right? Or two. I can't count. That's bad. I'm going to count Ollie. <laughs> that was the third one. Um, there we go. But we, right? We learn how to Google, but we learn how to do that appropriately. We learn how to check our resources. And so if our students know how to be good learners, how to be good problem solvers, communicators, collaborators, that is what's going to get them by far on the right track in life. I love that. I, 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 I love how you're referencing the standards because you're, you're absolutely right. It is at the core. And that, that's where the creativity and the, the expertise of the teacher comes in in, in designing the, the structure to make sure those standards are woven through the process and the students just stumble upon them. They don't, they don't, you know, I, Matt, I know you've, I've heard you say this many times, maybe not on the podcast, but like tricking the kids into learning, you know, that's really what you're doing. You're, you're tricking the kids into tackling those standards. So when you've, when you first described project-based learning and what it's not, you said it's not that, that project, um, like, you know, going to Michael's, like you said, when you were a kid, which I completely agree with. Project-based learning in its, I'll, I'll say in, in its best form is is incredibly inquiry-based. It's like you said, it's those need-to-know questions. It's the cycles of inquiry. I, I truly think there's like a, a middle ground or like a, a stepping stone, especially in building teacher comfort and also building the skills of students in, in tackling independent learning. So I'm actually going to serve this up to, to both of you. Maggie, you can go first. Can you... Can you talk about uh, possibly a project that you've done or just kind of describe it in a little bit of a way where uh, the students are, I'll say, they're navigating their own learning. They're, they're navigating their own path. Um, they're, they're discovering information themselves, but they almost have like a, a set checklist to cover so that they're, they're wondering and they're thinking and they're, they're navigating, but it's a very structured path in where they're going and maybe a little bit less of that inquiry, but a little bit more of that learning how to learn. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so you're right, project-based learning has this continuum and there's two pieces. There's the teacher comfortability and the student comfortability. What I'm describing now is working with sixth and seventh graders through a full year, even through a full year of COVID, to really release them, right? But some of our very first projects were very um, synchronized, right? We're all doing this. You have a little bit of choice, um, but your choice is narrowed by this. 
So for example, um, in a mathematics, uh, I, my backgrounds are math and English, and I love math PBL. Um, it really brings math to life. Uh, I do a project with the students where they are designing their own toy um, for a new toy company. And that toy company is built by math, powered by fun. That's the slogan of it. Um, and so wait, who doesn't want to be built by math, but powered by fun. And so this toy company is all based on shapes though, because they want children to recognize shapes. And so everything you see in these toy designs have to be a recognizable shape, a triangle, a quadrilateral, a polygon, a circle. And so the students start by developing a 2D blueprint of their toy. Now that's where the choice comes in. I'm not telling everybody your 2D blueprint has to be with one circle and two triangles, right? Like they get to come up with their 2D blueprints, but I leave that part open. And then we progress to the next stage, which is learning the area and finding the area and maybe talking a little bit about composite shapes and why do we need to understand the area for this. And then we move a little bit further and we start into talking about, well, let's, this 2D shape could come to life and it's with something called a net. Let's explore nets and talk about this. And how then can we take this net and actually learn what a 3D shape would look like? And now area is no longer just area, it's called surface area. And what is that? And so I'm stepping the students through the process all the while they're building this toy. Right, and we can explore volume with it, and we explore unit rate and talk about well, do you want your toy? Is it a plastic? Because here's the cost per square centimeter of plastic versus the cost for uh, a vinyl, right? Or a cost for this furry uh, material. And so I keep offering more nuggets of choice along the way. But students, meanwhile, are still designing this toy and creating their portfolio so that they can share with, their, with the toy company their design, right, and pitch their design. And so that would be like teacher comfortability. I'm very comfortable with leading my students step by step. But at that point, the student comfortability wasn't that open-ended, right? And so we're all going in the same pathway with just little choice. Sometimes the choice is you can do it by hand or use this app. Right. Even that minimal amount of choice starts us down the pathway of, you know, helping students empower them of how best do you learn and how can you display that learning best to me? Perfect. You nailed it. That's exactly what I was what I was asking. Matt, do you want to jump in with any examples or ideas related to that? That's that same topic of of building your students towards inquiry with a little bit more of a choice based project. I guess, um, so I have two examples, one that I've already talked about on the podcast before um, that I'll kind of briefly or kind of go over. But I think what's really interesting is when you challenge the kids with thinking, um, the mid-range kids and your lower-range kids are usually very durable and able to handle it. I find my higher kids really struggle when doing a kind of solving a problem that they don't have all of the kind of guidelines there. So in a less structured environment, just a little note to, to be kind of cautious of that discomfort and, um, it can cause some waves in the classroom. But one of my favorite activities that I've ever done, which is a classic fourth grade activity, is uh, hand a light bulb, a wire, and a battery to a kid and tell them to light it. Um, and 
I know it's something that I, I didn't necessarily do, but I know a lot of people have when they were in that grade level uh, in fourth grade, but they have to doodle an ex kind of an idea of how they think the light bulb would light before they try it. So they, you have the light bulb on the left-hand side of the paper, the battery in the middle and the wires on the right-hand side, nowhere close. That's the first trial and it doesn't light. And then you have different variations and it's really exciting when a kid says, oh, I got it to flicker. Eh, we're not positive it flickered, but the excitement usually pops in right around that time frustration starts to set in and it rejuvenates the entire class. And so eventually you figure out, okay, they found one method. You tell them there's four total methods to get up to light. And that drives them nuts until they find the second and then the third. And they feel so accomplished at the end. I know that's just a basic example, but every time we add a new item into the, the box of materials, they have that same exploratory experience where they are critically thinking, how could we possibly include it? Matt, I, I love that example. And what you're really touching on is productive struggle, right? How do we help our students productively struggle? How do we help them so that they don't end up past that zone of proximal development where they're in tears and so frustrated they can't learn? But how do we not make it so like straightforward that they're not learning, right? Their brains aren't growing. Um, and you talked a little bit about that kind of high, medium, low. Um, and I really want to challenge you a little on that. Because I feel like if we can give our students more productive struggle, we wouldn't necessarily see these grade banding or these these issues, right? Um, that we are that, and I am seeing it too often with students. But I also see it at every tier, because it's more about the process and having those tools, right? Um, and then I would love to see that light bulb demonstration with a table of materials. Could you give them some Play-Doh, some tin foil, right? And slowly keep opening that up so we can have more productive struggle and more creative inquiry. Oh, that's so fun. Well, and that's what the beauty of the, the lesson because we eventually kind of do different tiers of conductors and insulators. And what I find so interesting is the high learners are so determined to diagram the correct process before recognizing, hey, it didn't work, let's try five different things. And some of my other learners end up getting it and they become the hero of the class. And it's such a cool experience out of the, the hands-on learning and kind of the exploratory, no fear of failure, you're really building that kind of concept of, I'm going to try this, and I'm going to try this, and I'm going to try this, um, that everyone, as you were talking about, that productive struggle is really great. Um, another example that I just want to bring up, I've mentioned it before, is I absolutely love it. I'm trying to reframe it this year, um, this when I was in fourth grade, we did this million dollar project. I remember cutting out parts of a magazine to build my dream house after a million dollars. Um, and what was beautiful about it was you provided just enough framework and the project was built based off kids continuing to come up with really cool ideas. So we said, okay, you need to add that now and you need to add this and you're covering all the different areas. I know we have an episode. I kind of go into it further, but Again, the whole concept show behind seven. it's okay. So show seven, but the beauty behind it really becomes 
merging mathematical concepts that are really important and it's prove it's that they've kind of acquired the instruction or acquired the information they needed to have that part paired with something that represents their own personality and whether it's social justice whether it's a problem for a teacher we're all trying to help out and pitch in to solve whether it's a community service item or if it's just a pretty straightforward academic concept the idea of really pulling the the features of pbl into it where it's less uh, maybe you can challenge me if i'm wrong i view it less as reflection and instead i i view it as processing so in my class when we're doing our PBL activities, we're processing, we're not reflecting, because reflecting means that we finished. Um, and and I, they think of it as summative as opposed to in the process. So we are processing, what did we come across today? And we're gonna process again until we really have a conclusion at the end. Um, but I will tell you, I, I struggle to bring PBL in all year long. I'm, I applaud you for you being able to do that. I explode with PBL from middle of April till the end of the year. And I will say how we get to know kids, right? Like the beginning of the year is a great time to easily incorporate it. The meat of the year, I give you tons of kudos because I do find myself slogging through instruction, even though I know it's better for that long-term learning for them to do it otherwise. Yeah. It's hard. Oh, it's it's, it is hard. It, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And Matt, you're talking about that cycles of inquiry, right? When you talked about that processing, you're really hitting like, we think about it. Okay. We thought about it. We're reflecting on it. And now we're enacting a new idea off of it. We're branching off and we're going to continue cycling until we get to something. And this something is as finished as it is at that point. Right. And, and truly, just like I said, as teachers, we're always in the stage of becoming right. I'm becoming my better and better and better and better self in learning. We're just getting better and better and better at it. At one point we have to go, we're done with this time to move forward. Right. Let's learn. And now let's learn this new piece. Absolutely. Can I ask one question about that real quick? How finished, how finished of a project do you feel is necessary at the end of a PBL? Because I, I think we all recognize that the instruction is the valuable part, but there's also a value in the kids having a product at the end that they're proud of. And so what kind of um, middle ground do you feel that, hey, you're not, in, you're not overstepping and prompting to get it to a high enough quality that it's show worthy, but it's still something they actually have pride in, they completed and really use those finishing touches instead of getting 85% of the way through? I think it depends on the audience and the intent. So the example I shared of inhabiting space and colonizing space, as we're moving to the end of the year, our students are moving also in a huge personalized project towards their showcase. So our final audience is going to be other classmates and peers for this one. Um, it's not like we're presenting to some NASA official, right? But my previous project right before this, our students had, it was humanity and what unites us as humans. And our students had sent letters of uh, essays that they had reflected on what unites us as humans. They then requested people to send back letters 
answering that same question. And we had over, oh gosh, 150 some responses from people. And um, 30, I want to say 38 different states. We were trying for all 50. We did get um, a couple cards from France, Italy, Australia. So we got global there in there too. And the final product was students taking and creating what's called a found poem, if you're familiar with that. So you take the literature, whatever you're working on, a book, a chapter, in this case, several letters, and find words or phrases and put it together as a poem. Our students then made some double uh, photography, some double image, uh, double exposure photography with it, and we're putting it all together in a book. That project ended in March, technically, but we just got reviews back from some art education students at our local university. And so we're cycling back to that because that final product is going to be actually a hardcover published book. Um, so it really, it depends on the intent. Right. And I try to mix it up because if you always go for the highest level, you could be on one project for the entire year. Right. Um, so I try to mix it up and, and not put too much pressure on students at the end of every single project. Um, so that was our one project that needed to be fully completed to the best, everything as perfect as possible. That's a great way to put it. Um, I really do think it depends on, like you said, the the students you have, the, the intent, and I'm sure it changes year to year. Next year, you know, that, that project might not get revisited or you might not get that feedback or you might, it might go in a different direction that you're not even seeking feedback uh, from others. And, and Matt, to circle back to what you were saying about your, your science lessons, the, you know, creating those light bulbs, you easily could have said, okay, everybody, we're going to make, you know, we're going to make this light bulb light up with just these materials. Here's how you do it. And then have them diagram it afterwards. And, you know, talking about like when you were saying when you're in the meat of the year, it's harder to do PBL. It's harder to do some some of those open ended tasks and projects. And, you know, if you look at that that science unit as a whole, there's a good chance day five into your unit. You will be farther behind if you're taking a PBL approach than if you guided the students through it. But I guarantee by the end of that unit you're going to finish the unit pretty much on pace with if you had guided them through it you can throw away the review days you can throw away all those days they don't need it because they know it because they discovered it and they will do just as good if not better on any type of summative test that you're giving them because they figured it all out throughout throughout the process and if they see something different on the test they're going to be able to tackle it with the skills that they learned in that so you know i i, I really encourage teachers when you're thinking about approaching these these units or these uh, set of objectives or skills, and, and you can find a way to involve some sort of project-based learning, whether it's highly inquiry-based or not highly inquiry-based, but it's it's student-led, just trust that even if it takes a day longer, the understanding is going to be so much more thorough that it's going to make it up in the end. Or when you get to the next unit and you take that approach again, as you said earlier, Maggie, your students are learning how to learn. Those next projects become, you know, more efficient. They the students get better at it, and they're then tackling new content much faster. So I don't want to just totally cut this off, but I have a feeling it's going to kind of circle back in our our next segment, the lesson lens. So Matt and I are going to ask you some questions to. Um, get some more insight. You've already shared a lot. So 
we're throwing a challenge at you. You got to come up with something else if you've already used up what you were going to talk about here in this part of the show. But uh, the first question is, are we looking at a unit overview, a long-term project, or a single lesson? Oh, we're in a project world. That's shocking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you clarify for us um, grade level that it would be kind of directed for subject area if it is uh, one or a few, and maybe the time of year you would expect to be teaching this? Okay, so this is a project that I do with seventh graders, um, and it. Let's see, the project started in March. This I didn't do this this year, so I'm thinking back a little bit to pre-COVID and you'll hear why. Um, and the subject level, it is led through a mathematics and English lens. Awesome. I feel like that time of year question was more important uh, with this interview than it is sometimes with others, just because, uh, like you said, you're, you're building your students' ability to be independent, so that's going to definitely fluctuate depending on where you are in the year. So the next question is, is um, what are the objectives of the project? Okay. Um, so the project is called Mugs O Math. My students made up the silly title. Um, and the objectives were learning about surface area and volume metric system conversions. Um, and then we were learning about business writing and professional communication. And the aim, the overview of the project, is that um, students chose a local business, and it had to be like a local small business, not owned by like a big conglomerate, not like a Walmart or Target or something. Um, and their intent was to write the business owners and propose that they design a mug for this, a promotional mug for them. Um, and so then students continued through the process working with that professional communication. They had emails and phone calls and made video appointments with these professionals. And then while they're doing that, they were designing, they were listening to the, the business owner's ideas and they were designing a mug um, in a program called Tinkercad, uh, which is an online 3D modeling software with the intent to 3D print the mug, which they did. Um, and delivered the, the mugs to each of the businesses. We are very familiar with Tinkercad. We talk about it quite a bit. We absolutely love, love that program. I it's wonderful. So you kind of touched on this um, already. The, uh, the normal question is, what are the students actively doing during the lesson? But maybe I'll kind of frame it as, what academic um, features are the kids pulling in to be successful at this lesson? Okay. Um, one of the first keys is uh, professional communication, right? The whole project is going to flop if the students say, hey, sup, can I make a mug for you? Right? Like, sup is probably like really old too. I always sound stupid <laughs> when I try to pretend to be a student. Um, but Sounds they need to, to learn. Us. Agree. Yeah. Um, they need to learn, even in their emails, right? When they would email professionally, you can't just sort of like, hi, my name is so-and-so. It was, no, you need to say like, greetings, Mr. or Ms. or greetings, person's name. My name is so-and-so. I am a student at La Crosse Polytechnic. I am working on this project. Would you be willing to help? Instead of, I want to do this. Can you help me? 
right? With no signature, misspellings all over. And so it really launches with that professional communication uh, and that desire to connect with the business. And I've done this with um, two classes now of students and the businesses they run from restaurants, coffee shops, um, uh, a wedding, a wedding venue. Um, one of them was an axe throwing place, um, super cool looking mug at the end. Uh, but then that professional communication continues throughout. So the students after making that connection saying, I'd like to work on this project for school, you will have a mug, but I would like, um, your assistance in continuing to give me feedback. The students then have to make original designs and sketches, send it for feedback, get that feedback, continue to sketch it, ask questions about how many ounces they want their mug, who their clientele is. And so it's, it's continuing just to question and understand um, and then to get creative in the design process. And so some students designed coasters. Someone had a bookshop and the book was the coaster for the mug. Um, one student, he did the library and he didn't have a circular mug like a traditional one. He actually made it like an open book um, with a handle off the spine of the book. Um, and so that's where the creativity and the individuality came out. Um, but then along the way, students needed to learn things like surface area and volume. They needed to understand uh, different 3D shapes um, and scaling, right? So when your mug printed and it was more like a teacup, we didn't understand that we were in millimeters instead of centimeters on the program. That's awesome. So during the, the process of learning, what is your role as the advisor to ensure the success of the students? Yeah, I love that you caught that on the advisor. Um, keeping students, uh, we set um, soft and hard deadlines within that project. And so soft deadline would be, this would be a really great target date to meet it by. Hard deadline, if you're not here, you're, you're behind and it's going to be extremely tough to catch up. Um, and so that's um, very fluid with students who by the end of seven or, you know, middle of seventh grade have been with us usually for two years of project based learning and can manage that take on that independence. Um, and you know, my role is to provide enough scaffolding so that students can continue moving through the project and continue learning, even if they do reach a barrier of not being able to get a hold of their business person or not getting the feedback right away. Uh, then I provide, well, then go get feedback from, um, you know, another math teacher in the building or go get feedback from this parent or, um, you know, someone else, uh, um, one of our board members. And so I find avenues for students to continue to be successful, even if it wasn't in the intended trajectory. So I guess it sounds like, I know you haven't done it in a little bit, but um, it, you already kind of have community outreach, you already have professional um, back and forth, but do you have further dreams of how this can continue to grow or what you'd like to see it in the future? Yeah, so um, I've done this project before I said twice. I didn't tackle it this year during COVID um, just for a number of reasons because usually at the end we're going to the businesses, we're handing off the mugs. We can't, um, for various reasons, right, get kids on a bus and, and all that kind of stuff soon, I think someday. Um, but the second time around as I was working on this project, our librarian said, you know, my husband and I, we actually make molds 
And she said, you know, if you really got into this, we could actually make a mold and actually make a ceramic mug. Because right now they're 3D printed out of plastic and they deliver them and they look cute, but they're not usable at all. Um, really to transform this, I'd love to partner with like an org one organization or a business who actually wants promotional items, whether that's a mug or something else that my students could design and print and then actually work through the full process of making a mold. And um, that would be incredible, right? Absolutely incredible. Yeah, that would be. Would it be possible to do the project earlier in the year and and then potentially the students um, through like a 20% time or more of an independent project that they explore on their own could then stay connected with that business and and then go into any type of promotional items that they want. So they, they no longer have to connect to your standards, which you obviously need the mug because that's connecting directly to your standards. But, you know, if you did it earlier in the year, maybe some of the students kind of stem off that. And then now they're like actually making t-shirts for the company because they love the the logo and the design and, and that type of stuff. They just don't specifically want it on a mug. Right. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful idea. Um, and one thing that I love about our students is that being a charter school, many of them stick with us, not just sixth through eighth grade, but into high school as well. And so if I do this in seventh grade, um, I, you know, really dreaming big now, it'd be super cool if those students like maybe did start this, um, you know, partnership with the business and eventually did an internship with them right um and and have this business professional they could reach out to um and learn and maybe it's something that they eventually want to go into if it's marketing or or you know who knows sales um yeah that'd be beyond phenomenal and i think that's the beauty of when it is grounded in authenticity when it is grounded in our community um, is that those possibilities are there. It's, it's us asking the right questions like you did, Ken, dreaming big and, and taking those steps. Absolutely. Um, I just want to want to plug Tinkercad again. Even if you're not going to do an elaborate project like Maggie's describing here, if you teach any three-dimensional concept in math or science or any subject, you have to look into Tinkercad. It is free. Every student can have an account. You can set up a class. Um, I'm going to, uh, I don't have it yet, but I'm going to post in the Powered Up forums some tutorials on how you can teach volume, surface area, just uh, 3D dimensional shapes, vocabulary. If you do it, you'll never go back to any other method because the reality is, is we normally teach students three-dimensional concepts on a flat piece of paper. And we wonder why they're confused. Um, if, you, if you introduce it through Tinkercad, it's, you don't even have to have a 3D printer. Just using it as a platform to teach three-dimensional math is a, is a game changer. So our last segment of the show is the exit ticket. Four questions that Matt and I ask every guest every week. So question number one is, what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Um, love them. Just love them. Whoever they are, whatever they bring to the table, just love them. Like I said, we're in process. These young human beings are so in progress. Um, and they can drive us crazy, for sure. <laughs> they can annoy us day in and day out. 
Uh, but if we can get to the stage where we, we just wholeheartedly give, give our hearts to them um, and recognize them as human beings, that's what they need. That is the truth. Um, what is the best piece of advice that you've gotten um, from a colleague or a supervisor or even a student that you think of frequently? Wow. I know you sent the questions and I totally didn't read them. <laughs> so maybe read That's the questions. That's all right. We, we like authentic, authentic answers. <laughs> read the questions ahead of time. Best piece of advice. Um, okay, or something that you think of. Yeah, that you get like. Here's yeah. one. Here's one. Um, and this stems back to my undergraduate education. I had a professor, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it was something alarming enough that it stuck with me, is that there is an alarming percent of students who go an entire day at school and never say a word. Okay, and I'm not going to quote a number, and I'm not going to be that math teacher that makes the statistic up. But there is an alarming number of students who do go through the number through the day without speaking a word. And so, one of my ground rules in advisory every single day is that every student hears his or her or their voice positively within the first within that first half hour that we have advisory. They need to hear their voice positively, not just from my lips, but their own voice too. Um, and so grounding, grounding myself every day in that is something I, I try to think of and enact of on that daily basis. I love that. We have not heard anything like that. I, I, I really love that advice. Yeah. So the school year goes in waves. We have our stressful times typically circled around report cards, conferences, state testing. What is something that you can say to teachers who are in that moment of struggle for them to really power up and, and rise out of it? Yeah. Um, take time for yourself. I'm sure you've heard that one, but our mental health, our, our well-being, find something that brings you joy uh, because we need to come to the classroom just joyful and happy. Um, our, uh, it's, so, it's so true that who we are, our mood impacts the entire classroom. And, and so if you get to that stressor point and you need that break, find a way, find a friend, find a loved one, um, find an activity, but bring back the joy um, and, and it will make everything so much better for you and for your students. Boy, oh boy, is it true. And Maggie, I will spare you from the outfit I wore today to, to reinforce how great of a day it was today. Um, the last thing we have, this hopefully is an easy one for you, is uh, how our audience can keep up with you. Um, just the idea of whether it's passively or actively, what are the best ways if they want to continue the conversation or learn from you further, uh, the best ways to do so? Yeah. Um, I love Twitter. It's my professional go-to. So I am at Maggie Lee McHugh, uh, Maggie Lee, L-E-E McHugh, M-C-H-U-G-H. Um, I am a national faculty member for PBL Works. So if they're interested in the project-based learning side, um, check out pblworks.org. Um, and I am also on the Powered Up Forum. And so you can connect yeah. with me there as well. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that you said that. It's growing. It's it's getting there. It's um, it's, it's a vision, but it's 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 getting there. And and Matt and I are both uh, very active on on Twitter as well. And I think it's a a great way to connect with teachers. But the the biggest thing that we're we're trying to push with Powered Up is is you can engage in longer conversations with with educators. You're not limited by characters. 
You can ask deeper questions. You can share more meaningful content and it becomes a searchable tool for others. So someone can come on a year later and see the conversation that, that, you know, the two of us or the eight of us engage in and, and learn from that, even if they're not there present in that moment, whereas Twitter is not as searchable, but it's still a great way to network with educators as well. So Maggie, thank you so much. This was a blast. Uh, I, you offered so much insight. You offered a lot of practical things that teachers can implement. Um, maybe not tomorrow because it requires a little bit more planning, but something that they can start to think about and plan tomorrow to maybe implement uh, the next day or, or the day after that. Um, but just think about ways that you can really get your students to drive the instruction through through inquiry or just through some choice. So everything that was shared tonight, as well as the links, ways to contact Maggie can all be found on our show notes page, which is powereduup.com slash show 21. Um, and we have some highlights of, of everything that's there. I'll link to the Tinkercad post that I, I put on the forums in there, as well as anything else pertinent for, for tonight's show. If you are listening for the first time, please subscribe to us on YouTube or your podcast app of choice. Please share this with other educators. We are talking to amazing, amazing teachers, just like Maggie, who really are making a difference for students' lives and the other teachers that they connect with. And Matt and I just want as many people as possible to hear the messages that they're sharing and, and hear the practical insight that they are providing to our audience. So Maggie, thanks again. Thank and you. Matt, why don't you... Uh, why don't you close shop up here for us? All right. So as we power down this episode, Maggie, you did a great job powering us up. Everyone, we are nearing the end of the year. Be well, be healthy, um, and make every day count. We'll talk to you guys next time.